Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we have been in Acts, and so let's recap. Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi, and they were put there because as they were ministering, some woman who was a fortune teller, she was demon-possessed, they set free from the demons, Paul and Silas did. And those who employed her for her fortune-telling abilities were very upset because their income stream was cut off. And so we read out of chapter 16, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods, and that's exactly what happened. They were beaten, and then they had their feet put in stocks in a prison. And then we look at our passage that we're going to look at today. In fact, why don't you all stand as we do this? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly... There was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so, Lord, there is much for us to unpack here and to gain, but we need your spirit. We need your spirit to teach us and to give us the will and the power to put these things into practice. And so we rely upon you to do just that. I thank you for these people our brothers and sisters in Christ here at CCC who love your word, who don't apologize for your word, and who receive it with gladness. What a joy it is to be their pastor. I pray that you'll continue to work in them that uh, they would not only receive the knowledge, but that they would take what is learned today and we'd apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All of us have had to face opposition or conflict at some time, on some level. Uh, some of you have experienced immediate opposition, for instance, when you came to Christ. Uh, you felt rejection or, or hurt, hurtful words were spoken by, by family members. Uh, others perhaps have had to face a conflict of, of a different kind, not necessarily related to your faith. And, and then there are some difficulties that we experience that 
we bear some fault for and others that we don't, but they're still all difficult and, and taxing. For instance, let's say um, tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt, that creates some stress, but that is a hole that I help to dig myself, right? So while all stress and pressure are, are similar, our culpability may differ according to the type of conflict we're going through. Now, in our story today, we find some helpful guidance in going through difficulties, no matter what kind of difficulties they are. I think the things that we learn here will be helpful. And those, these, these circumstances are extraordinary, I'll give you that. I think they're still very practical a, a guidance that we can all benefit from. Let's take a look here at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now remember, these two men have been beaten. They have been unjustly accused. They have been thrown into prison, and they have their feet shackled. Yet Paul and Silas are found singing and praying. The psalmist wrote, let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Well, the bed for these two was a blood-stained prison stone. And yet it did not stop them from singing, from praying. In fact, they changed the name of this prison to Sing Sing. You got that for free, all right? You didn't have to pay for that. They were joyful they were joyful in their suffering, to enter into the fellowship of suffering. Now, if you were to ask, all right, what is the mark of a mature believer? Well, how about this? How about enduring with joy? Paul wrote in Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So, you see, we have a choice in the type of perspective that we take in suffering. You may not have a choice in some circumstances that you go through, but all of us choose our perspective, right? We have a choice in the perspective that we take. So, our perspective during hardship can either help us endure or it can contribute to us wanting to quit, right? Now, I suppose there's some endurance without joy. You know, when I do premarital or marital counseling, you know, I'll talk to couples and they can maybe endure for 20 years, but they're not enjoying it. They're doing it out of obligation. There's that kind of endurance. But what Paul and Silas were doing was enduring with joy. They were not complaining. They were not dour. They were humbly rejoicing that they were a part of the fraternity of suffering saints, and they counted it a privilege. That's pretty cool. Uh, in 2016, there was a group of 100 runners trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. This particular race was in Pennsylvania. And along the way, a train interrupted their route, though they were given assurances that such disruptions would not take place. And it took like 10 to 15 minutes for this train to pass. Well, obviously, that ruined all their times for the race. 
I mean, typically suffering is viewed like that. It's like a train that gets in our way. It's a train that keeps us from being successful, from keeps us, it keeps us from reaching our goal. However, for the believer, suffering is a pathway. It's a pathway to the successful Christian life that wants to be building maturity. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the audience for this duet by Paul and Silas was a prison population. Have you ever heard prisoners sing? I have on several occasions. And there can be genuine joy in singing about the Lord. It's really a cool thing to witness. But the word translated listening here, it means to listen with pleasure. I mean, they were, they were listening in and they were enjoying what they were hearing. The same could be said for souls that are in bondage, not just bodies that are in bondage. But souls, I think, find this Christian joy attractive for Christians who walk in this joy. Now, granted, there are some who are annoyed by it too. <laughs> but I think that by and large, people find it remarkable that people can find joy in suffering. All of us have to remember that there are others around us who are influenced by our response to suffering. There's always an audience, right? It's in times of darkness that the light of a Christian witness shines brightest. Parents, how your kids see you respond to difficulties sets the stage for them. And so we always have an audience. Richard Stearns, the president of World Vision, reflected on his visit to a church in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And this was right after that devastating earthquake that they had. And uh, the, the church's building that he visited consisted of a tent made from white tarp and duct tape and pitched in the midst of a strolling camp of thousands of people that were still homeless from this earthquake. And this is how he describes the church and the lesson that he learned in Haiti. And those of you that have been to Guatemala or have been overseas and and witness, you know, devastation, uh, you'll, you'll be able to, to relate to this. But uh, Stearns wrote this, in the front row sat six amputees ranging in age from six to 60. They were clapping and smiling as they sang song after song and lifted their prayers to God. The worship was full of hope and thanksgiving to the Lord. No one was singing louder or praying more fervently then Demasi Lofine, a 32-year-old, unemployed, single mother of two. During the earthquake, a collapsed building crushed her right arm and left leg. After four days, both limbs had to be amputated. She was leading the choir, leading prayers, standing on her one leg, lifting her one hand high in praise to God. Following the service, I met Demasi's two daughters, ages 8 and 10. The three of them now live in a tent five feet tall and perhaps eight feet wide. 
Despite losing her job, her home, and two limbs, she is deeply grateful because God spared her life on that day. He brought me back like Lazarus, giving me the gift of life, says Damasi, who believes that she survived the devastating quake for two reasons, to raise her girls and to serve her Lord for a few more years. It makes no sense to me as an entitled American, now Stearns is speaking, who grouses at the smallest inconveniences, a a clogged drain or a slow Wi-Fi connection in my home. Yet here in this place, many people who had lost everything express nothing but praise. I find my own sense of charity for people like Damasi inadequate. They have so much more to offer me than I to them. I feel pity and sadness for them, but it is they who might better pity me for the shallowness of my own walk with Christ. I saw this happen even in our own family. As uh, I've shared this story before, of I took two of our sons to Russia, and we ministered in some orphanages that were just horrible conditions. And especially from my one son, who was kind of had a trajectory that was going south in terms of his relationship with the Lord, when he saw how people were responding to this, you know, these dire needs that they had, and how the Christians still had joy, and seeing how other people were, I mean, the Lord just really kicked him in the hind end, and he realized how he was squandering his time. There's something to be said for having a picture of how other people are living. Verse 26 says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You know, miracles come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. For instance, Peter, when he escaped from prison twice in Acts 5 and in Acts 12, it was through the direct intervention of angels. Well, here, Paul was released through an earthquake. And the quake was severe enough to free them from the bonds that were attached to either the walls or the floor, and it opened the doors, but miraculously, the building does not cave in. I find that quite amazing in and of itself. The building remained intact. And perhaps even more miraculous, the other prisoners did not seek to escape. We can always Count on God to intervene. Let me say it again. We can always count on God to intervene. And God has a choice in how he'll do this. He either intervenes miraculously and we escape a trial. And sometimes God helps us to endure through the trial. In both ways, God is intervening, right? I mean, we pray for God to deliver us, and maybe God is wanting to do something deeper in us and have us endure through the trial. But either way, it's God's choice, and he intervenes. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So the jailer's intention was to kill himself, and that was based on the fact that Roman soldiers who was derelict in their duty and a prisoner escaped, they themselves, the the, the guards, 
would face death. And the Roman guard could not for that moment see any other way out than to kill himself. He preferred death at his own hand as opposed through Roman justice. Did you know that over 40,000 people in the United States every year commit suicide? That's an alarming stat. Nearly a million and a half attempt it. The fact is, when death is preferred over any other choice for a million and a half people, that tells me there's a great need for hope. As a Christian, do we not offer the best hope known to humankind? Suicide is also happening in the body of Christ, sadly. And the church, I think, has to welcome a conversation about mental health and quit with simplistic answers that fail to address physical and emotional aspects, as well as the spiritual. And it's certainly, I think, deception that anybody gets to a point where they think that death is the only escape. I have conducted and attended funerals of suicide victims, and I can attest that we need to have an open conversation. And it's interesting how a person's theology also affects how they approach that topic. One funeral, people were without hope because they had a theology that said, people who commit suicide go to hell. Well, as, as much as I can see, there's no direct biblical support for concluding that suicide guarantees an eternity in hell. That doesn't mean that there are no consequences. See, for a believer, suicide cuts off the opportunity for continued service to the Lord on earth, and it greatly reduces, I think, and minimizes eternal rewards. Not to speak of what you leave on earth in in your wake of doing such an act, of friends and and family who are now left with with the anger and the, the regret and the confusion and the loss. So there's a tremendous price to pay. Even in our pain, God gives us opportunity to minister to others. We see this in this scenario. Uh, It's a great demonstration of grace that we see here. Paul does not see this as an opportunity to escape or for the jailer to receive his just recompense. I mean, if ever there was an opportunity to set the record straight and to have this guard be repaid, this would be the opportunity. But that's not what takes place. Now, we don't know if it was a dark place, how Paul knew. Maybe it was the sound of the sword coming out of its uh, sheath. We don't know how he knew that this guy was going to kill himself, but he yells for him to stop. And he's trying to calm his fears and tells him, The other prisoners are still in place. And Paul immediately has compassion upon his captor. Now, we're not told who the men were that were doing the torturing and and beating, but you have to think the guards had something to do with it. And imagine being beaten by somebody and then having the wherewithal to show compassion to them. It's an amazing thing. It's also amazing to know 
that despite all of these efforts by the Roman government, they could not curtail the gospel. No matter how many people they jailed or killed, God still was moving even in this prison. Instead of shutting up, Paul and Silas took up singing and praying and proclaiming the gospel in a jailhouse. And we can see God here transforming lives, even with a sleeping guard. The words of Paul in Ephesians 5.14 take on new meaning. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. To say that there was great urgency on the part of the guard would be quite an understatement. He rushes in from his cell, uh, into the cell, and he's shaking from fear. I mean, the, the prisoners who he had beat, he's now bowing before them, Paul and Silas. And he realizes that Paul and Silas really are sent from God. Why else would he do these kind of things? I mean, it, it took an earthquake. It took him, you know, facing the loss of his own life for this guard to humble himself. What did it take for us? What did it take for us to see our need? Because, you know, God can strip away the veneer through circumstances and cause us to see our need of him. Maybe it's, it's financial loss. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Perhaps it's not getting, you know, some goal that you've, you've sought after and you've never been able to accomplish it. Maybe it was a divorce. All kinds of things that God uses to bring us to our knees. And he's wanting us to see our need of him. He does it with people who don't know Christ. They see their need of Christ. And he does it with Christians who maybe now are, are walking independently of the Lord and God has to bring them to a point to see that they desperately need the Lord. The fact is, prison guards are usually tough dudes. I mean, there is a, a tough guy persona in that culture. These are guys that are not known for their vulnerability. They're not known to easily admit a need. But that is exactly where God wants all of us. I remember hearing a dear friend Talk about as a deer, you know, pants for the water that's in desperate need. So we're to, you know, yearn for the Lord. And a, another person commented, well, yeah, you know, there are some times when I'm desperate. And my pastor friend said, we should always be desperate. We should always be desperate. You know, I, I sat and thought about that. I'm like, mm, you know, he's right. Because if I'm, if I'm acknowledging my true need, there, there's a sense of desperateness that I have. That it's, it's either the Lord or bust. But I don't always feel that. I sometimes feel like I've really got it together. You know, 
I sometimes feel like I don't have any needs, you know? I've got a home, I've got a car, I've got a wife, I've got kids. Things are going great, right? And so I, I don't always sense this great need. I'm not sure that's good. <laughs> I can't depend on those things, right? Um, and God can take any of that away like that. And so this, this idea of humbling ourselves before God and acknowledging our need, uh, there's something to that. Not, not that I'm not grateful for all those things. I, you know, I am. I think God wants to humble us. And this tough guy persona is something that often he has to break through. Now, you can still be a tough man and still have a humble heart, right? You, you, you can exhibit a, a true manliness. And certainly, pride and arrogance are not something unique to men. But this was a man here in our story. So the guard brings... Paul and Silas out of their cell, and he asked a straightforward question. What must I do to be saved? Now, this was not a question to save his job. This was a question to save his soul. And perhaps a case has already, you know, been built up in his mind. We can, we can assume that he was at least aware, if not witness, what Paul and Silas did to that servant girl in casting out a demon. We can also assume that he probably knows of their teaching or maybe even heard them teach before now. We know that he heard them sing and pray while in prison. And now he's witnessed an earthquake that was so localized it just freed prisoners, but the building was intact. I mean, if salvation was possible, these two guys would have to know something about it because it sure seems like they've been sent from God. So tell me, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. I want you to notice that belief is centralized on the person of Jesus Christ and not a doctrinal system. Uh, Paul and Silas did not say, uh, you're to believe in Reformed theology. You're to believe in Pentecostalism. You're to believe in whatever. That wasn't the point. And not that you can't have a stance on those things, it's just that that's not the point of salvation. It was localized upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, the simplicity and directness of those simple words, my dear friends, they're the most beautiful words ever given to humankind. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Now don't tell me you can never share the gospel because you can say those words. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He does not require this man to repent specifically from his savagery, even though I don't think anybody would blame him if he did. And listen, buddy, before we start talking about this stuff, all right, I, you know, I want you to say you're sorry to me. <laughs> he doesn't do any of that. And I, I think 
He cuts to the chase, gets to the focus upon Jesus. I think this is an example to all of us that to the person who's repentant, you take them by the hand. You show kindness, not, not hardness. Even when maybe being hard on them would be understood. But that's not what he does. This offer of salvation is the same for this man's household as it was for him. Salvation is promised to anyone who believes. Now, such a passage is not teaching salvation by proxy, and some even use it for infant baptism, assuming that there are infants in this household, but the passage doesn't tell us anything like that. I think we're safe to say it's an open offer to all in the man's household. And apparently they all responded positively to the gospel message. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Now, some think that the house of this guard was somehow attached to the prison. That may be. We, we don't know that for sure. But we do know that the guard invited Paul and Silas to his home. And I find it a remarkable scene that the one who was doing, you know, the, the, the torturing and had them beaten has been converted and is now inviting them into his home for a meal and Paul and Silas accept the invitation. Imagine being welcomed by somebody in their home who was a part of your beating and imprisonment. Have you ever had to, had to do that? I, mean, I got to tell you, there, there are homes that I've been to where people have set us up, you know, Jan, me being a pastor, and uh, they want to come up and basically, you know, I want you to come over for dinner and what it was was a diatribe, you know, to give me the what for for whatever. It doesn't matter. But the, the point is that, you know, I'm saying when I leave that home, well, it's the last time I'll go into that house, right? Well, listen to me. And then look at, look at Paul and Silas. This guy beat him! Had him imprisoned! And he's being welcomed into their home. And he's saying, yeah. Let's, let's do this, Silas. I, I wonder what that conversation was like between the two of them as maybe they're walking the steps to the, the room, you know. What do you think he's going to do, you know? Or you think this is all a show? No. I think they had fullest confidence that God had done something special in this man. And who had been his enemy was now part of his family. That's the power of the gospel. It's an amazing thing. Humility and repentance are always accompanied by corresponding actions and what this guard represented in his hospitality, in the, in the kindness that he gave now to Paul and Silas. It showed tremendous transformation. Humility puts us in a position to be transformed by God. Frankly, there's hardly a greater hypocrisy than two Christians who refuse fellowship based on a past offense. There's not a greater hypocrisy or maybe even a, a slight doctrinal difference. Now, I get it that sometimes the other party isn't willing. I get that. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. 
But don't let it be said of us, you know, that we're in the ditch and I'm not going to do anything to help this other person or whatever. That's, that's hypocrisy. Of all people who should be reconcilers, who go the extra mile, it ought to be us because we've been given so much grace. You know, the, the transformation that God brings to our lives, listen to me, it's always intensely relational and practical. And we see it borne out in this passage. Here in Acts, we see this gospel being lived out with hospitality. I mean, what could be more practical than that? And what could be more relational than, than allowing the most prized possession we have, our home, being used for the kingdom of God, inviting people in? And not only was it lived out in hospitality, it was lived out with food and a cold compress for wounds. That great picture? Hey, hey, Paul, here, let me, let me wipe this leg of yours. It's got this blood on it. Ah, what a great picture. That's gospel transformation. And the entire family believed. And the entire family was baptized. No wonder there was great rejoicing. I mean, there's a unique joy that comes to a fellowship when we see others transformed by the gospel. It's exciting. There's a lot of folk that talk about the true signs of a Christian or the true signs of being filled with the Spirit. For my money, I'll take sincere hospitality and a willingness to be kind to our, what well, used to be, our enemies. I'll take that as surefire marks that God has gotten a hold of your life. Very practical, very relational. Don't talk to me about your theology when you are stonewalling other people. Hear the gospel transformed the heart of this guard. And now he's got two extra brothers in his spiritual family. Cruelty and callousness had been changed into Christian mercy and tenderness, a, a willingness to now attend to immediate needs. Despair of this guard, that, that despair that had him by the throat, thinking suicide was his only escape, and now he's rejoicing for the salvation of his whole family. That is true transformation. Prison was intended for Paul and Silas to shut him up. Instead, this prison was turned into a gospel meeting with singing, an invitation, baptism, and a potluck. Listen, in any circumstance, God will intervene. Let's pray.